Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 150, recorded December 12th, 2013. Our 80th 90s episode. Yes. And uh, today we're covering or finishing off Ill Win miniseries, so mm-hmm. issues two through four. Right, so we're wrapping up this four-parter, which takes us into an interesting space sailing race america's cup sort of thing setting. right or the you know the star trek version of the bunta eve race there on tatooine when oh. young anakin skywalker <laughs> won his freedom boy i didn't think of it that way at all <laughs> but yeah i guess well no because that that race was exciting oh ah. <laughs> it was also short and uh powered right. by machines as opposed to solar wind. The solar wind. Yes. Let's hope they don't get any of that ill wind coming their way. Yes, indeed. Okay. So, yeah, this miniseries, it was good. I think it could have been a little shorter or had more to it, but I guess we can talk about that later. We can. Although I will say, I think the writer, Diane Duane, mm-hmm. either she's really into sailing... <laughs> or she did a lot of research to see what she could adapt from typical boat races to the outer space Star Trek universe. So I, I applaud her for that, although she does go into some lengthy detail at times. But we're going to find out as we continue on. Right. Yeah. So uh, I guess you want to just jump into it? Let's do it. All right. Fair enough. So this is issue number two which came out December of 1995. I think it's just called Ill Wind Part 2. Writer is Diane DeWayne. Penciler is Daryl Skelton. Inker is Pablo Marcus. Letterer, Phil Felix. Colorist, Pamela Rambo. And the editors are Margaret Clark and Dana Curtin. So the cover is another painting by Hugh Fleming. Um, if you remember, he did issue number one. Basically, it's kind of broken into two halves. It's all mingled in. It's a collage of some sort. But the left half of the page shows Data, and he's kind of staring off to the side. Um, so just head and shoulders Data. And then over to the right, uh, we see two large reptilian aliens standing with their arms crossed. They look a little Gorn-like, but... They're not. They're those uh, the aliens that we were introduced to in issue one. And then below them, we see a depiction of the Enterprise D, and it's glowing with a blue hue of some sort. So it's it's a pretty cool picture. I, I like this painting. So the story starts, and the race is about to start, and the Sun sailcraft are getting to the starting line. The Enterprise is keeping its distance but monitoring for any type of trouble. Picard and Worf contact the ten different ships to check on all the pilots. Everyone gives the all-green signal. 
Riker and Troy comment about how the bird species has lost its sail technician due to being perhaps nibbled on a little too hard last night from one of the female feline species. Suddenly, the turtle-like species radios in and informs the Enterprise that there's something odd attached to one of the other ships. A quick scan, and Worf confirms that it is a bomb, the same one that us readers saw the mysterious person plant at the end of issue one. A very precise tractor beam performed by Worf pulls the bomb off the very delicate ship and away from everyone so that it explodes and no harm is done to the sailing craft. Crisis averted, the racers get ready to once again begin the race. Later, and about six hours into the race, Worf informs the captain that the Mistral's supply ship has not yet arrived. This is puzzling, since it was supposed to only be gone for about 12 hours, and yet it has not arrived at all since the Enterprise has been there. Picard contacts the Mistral's ship. She says that she will check into it, but she does not seem to be too worried. She and Picard then have a lengthy conversation about the choices they have made and the limitations it has put on them. The Mistral still races, even though she's the ruler of an entire planet. Picard is captain of a single starship, yet the Federation does not permit him to do races in any type of dangerous events. Once they are finished talking, Data calls the captain to the bridge. There, he tells Picard that the blue star that they are around is producing more solar flares. They are large, but Picard does not call off the race, though he does say that he will if the flares increase in volume. Later in 10 Forward, Troy joins Riker and Picard at their table. She tells them that she has been experiencing sleepiness. Not just being tired, not run down, but just being sleepy. It started once they arrived there at the race. The trio think that this is odd, but they do not seem too concerned since Crusher has given Troy a clean bill of health. Later, the race is in full swing. One of the lizard creatures' yachts start to lose power. The crew try to figure out what's going on, and they find out that the other lizard race, the one that's identical to them except, I think, for the number of gills that they have is riding behind their ship and blocking the solar winds. This is a legal move, but the leading ship's captain is none too pleased. He orders that his crew jettison a part of the aft hull. When they do so, the piece of the ship falls back and smashes into the trailing ship. The injured craft almost smashes into the Mistral's ship, but she is able to quickly sidestep the craft. Later, Data informs the captain that the star is about to produce another large flare. Picard orders Data to contact the Mistral and give her a heads up. It is unclear if they gave the same information to the other racers. On the Mistral's ship, her co-pilot breaks protocol and calls her by her given name. She tells him that he could be put on trial for that, even if he was her husband before she took office. As the rest of the crew prepares for the solar flare, the co-pilot clicks something on his arm. To be continued. What could that be? Don't know. It's very mysterious that he would do that. Yeah, if he is what he purports to be, just a loving husband, he wouldn't be so uh, sneaky about it. 
Well, maybe he's clicking that so that her surprise party shows up. Oh, that must be it. Because that's yeah. exactly what a lady would like, like that would want to see in the uh, middle of her big race. <laughs> right. So, again, in this one, the cockpit that they're in is huge, and they're on those floating chairs that seem to have no you know, single plane of reference. So some are upside down, some are on the side. Yeah, but apparently they do move. Yeah, no, they seem to be floating all over the place. Cause right. At one point, she's above him, and then she <clears throat> kind of floats up next to him so that he can touch her arm and stuff. Right, so they're side by side at one point. So, I don't know. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, w- it, wouldn't you want to be bolted in somehow? But Yeah, and wouldn't you want to have a smaller craft so that you can... I don't know, be more aerodynamic. I know that you don't have to be when you're in a spaceship, but still. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> you, you, could be, they, you could be a Borg cube and move along just fine. I mean, they keep talking about how delicate these are, and when you look at them, they're very, you know, they look very streamlined. But then on the outside, they look very streamlined, but then you're on the inside of this one, and it looks like this giant chamber with floating chairs yeah. all over the place. Right. Well, it's very strange. Yeah, the Mestral's ship does appear as if it's like maybe two chambers, at least from the outside. So it looks like it's, it's the insectoid one. Right. So it's got the main one that I think they're in, and that's towards the front. And then there seems to be a smaller one in the back. Uh, but maybe that's just mechanisms and stuff. Who knows? I don't know. Interesting. Well, they're all they're all out of it. When, when she has a conversation with Picard uh, there at the beginning... She's in that large chamber all by herself. She says she's right. let all the other ones have a rest. Ah, so maybe that's sleeping quarters in the back? Eh, yeah. whatever. Yes. Anyway, so, so the Mistral ship definitely seems to have the widest wingspan for their solar sails. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't describe it, but it looks very, like, dragonfly-like. Mm-hmm. With a right. long beak type thing. That's right. And two sails that go out sideways like like wings. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, anyways, the Mistral seems very strange to me. I mean, I get it. She's a leader. She's very passionate about her people and their mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, that she even gave up being married and her name and all that stuff, yet she still wants to be part of this. I get all that. It's just seems a little strange that they keep beating us over the head with it, and that Picard seems to be favoring them. Because it didn't say that he contacted the other nine racers to say, hey, these solar flares are about to come. Yeah, this is what the latest models. Although I'm sure that they contacted everybody with the info. I can't see him just giving it to her. I don't know. He only gives. He only tells Data to, to contact them. Well, hmm. okay. Yeah, eh, yeah. Maybe it's just that he wants to deliver the message to the Mestral himself. Or with Data. Well, he tells And Data. the other ones are like, yeah, you other guys. But he's always talking to her. Yeah, he no. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so one of those one of those lizard people's ships got smashed, and all he does is contact her. Are you okay? <laughs> that was a close one, right? <laughs> and Worf's like, oh, the other people are flying off to somewhere... Off the course. Uh, who cares yeah. about them, Morph? Yeah. Is she okay? <laughs> Serves them right. <laughs> Mistral. Yes. Well, she is kind of cute. And as the uh, story progresses, there's something going on there. 
that's unspoken. Yep. Definitely a little unspoken thing going on there between uh, the captain and the Mistral. Now, I did like the whole kindred spirits type thing. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he loved racing. He was a, you know, we've seen in like tap the, what's an episode called Tapestry, where he was very reckless in his youth, you mm-hmm. know. So, right. you know, it's nice that they're making references to that. But, and then he gave it all up to, you know, focus on being a captain. And she has even more responsibility than he does, but she still does all the stuff that, you know, he would have liked to back in his youth. Uh, I like that that part of the story, although I think that it eats up a little too much page space. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that whole conversation is, what, like six pages long? Yeah, there's a, lo- there's a lot of long conversations. There's long conversations towards the end between the Mistral and, uh, what, Rav or Raj or wh- whatever the, the husband's name is. I think his name's name Rev, is. right? Rev. Rav? Rev? Okay. R-E-V? There you go. Uh, I thought it was R-E-V, but maybe I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah, so uh, there's just a lot of talking going on, but which is fine. Which is fine. Yeah. Character development. Relationship development. Right. And not to spoil anything, but, uh, you know, we see the lizard people here. We see the turtle people. We see the cat and the bird people mm-hmm. in this issue. We saw them last issue. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't ever see them again. <laughs> oh, the bird people? Any of those. We don't see the lizard people again either. Do we? Uh, fa, 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 fa. you may be right. Now that I, now that you mention it. Yeah. So now that you mentioned, I think you may be right. I don't mean to spoil anything, you know, but uh, you know they have this crash, and then that's that's about it for their storyline. Right. Well, they're referred to, but we we really don't care about seeing them anymore. <laughs> they're just background. They just they just are out there. Now I liked the you know the whole. You know, I'm gonna mess with you by taking the wind out of your sails, kind of thing. Right, by blocking uh, the, uh, the solar, solar winds. Right. I, I thought that was cool, and then I liked the idea of just, you know, just jettisoning cool. something that you don't need and them just <laughs> smashing big into and heavy. It. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, as they go through this uh, series of, of issues, it is a little interesting how they're painting how uh, a solar powered sailcraft race might work. It's kind of interesting. Especially in the last issue when you find out a little bit more about how the course is set up. Uh, until that issue, I really didn't have a good feeling for you know, what the, you know, where they were going exactly. Right. I mean, you figure, well, outward. Yeah, because you're pushed by the solar, by, by the star's uh, solar wind. Mm-hmm. But uh, exactly how they run, ran the course, because you can't go backwards. I mean, I mean, if you're being pushed out by the solar wind, you're going outward in some way, shape, or form. You're not going backwards, ever. So, well, at least under normal circumstances. All right. Uh, so I just, I think it's kind of interesting. One of the more interesting aspects of the story, quite frankly. Of course, they also go into so much detail about some of the tech in the uh, sailcraft. They go into great detail about how the sails are one molecule thick mm-hmm. which and that makes it strong and it's like I'm not a physicist I'm not a physical engineer maybe a software engineer but not a physical one <laughs> and if you are truly one molecule thick which blows my mind anyway that something could be that thick but 
you just got a bunch of little molecules that are like connected to each other on one plane, right? One side. Right. As opposed to having layers of molecules also being involved in the bond, which I don't see how <laughs> a one molecule thick bond would be all that strong. I mean, it seems like just the opposite. Right. I mean, the thicker the piece of wood, the stronger it is. The thinner the piece of the wood, easier, it's easier to break. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not a good. Maybe not a good analogy, but I don't know. It just no, seems very counterintuitive. Uh, you know, think about aluminum foil versus a piece of steel. Sure, sure. sure. I mean, right. exactly. I, I, I'm I'm with you in the same. I'm 100% with you. Right. So somehow yeah. they're able to align those molecules and keep them in that keep exact shape. Right. Right. I don't know. And then the mast is made of uh, one crystal of tritanium that can lengthen or shorten based on the frequency that the crystal is set to vibrating at. Now, that's kind of interesting. But also, it sounds like a bunch of TNG technobabble. Right. Yeah, so I don't know of any crystals that shriek. Uh, right, because of the vibration. Of course, we don't have that technology yet. <laughs> but but it's yeah, it's made of one crystal. Maybe Kryptonians did. Maybe that's what made Superman's hey, house. There you go. Maybe they stole this from the Superman universe. Maybe. 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 Yeah, I, I didn't go into that and they talk more about it in issue four and and right. it's not going to be mentioned very much in my synopsis because right. to me it was just Techno babble, just I, I get what it's doing or what it's supposed to be doing, and, and I'll just keep going with it. Yeah, go with it. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think the artwork in this issue is better than the last issue. Personal opinion. Um, now, did Pablo Marcus do it last pa- last issue? No. So this okay. is the first time we got Pablo doing it. Our old friend Pablo. And I think this is the last time he does it, too. I think he just is the uh, inker for this uh, issue. Oh, really? But, um, but but you can see in some of the faces and stuff, you can see, you can see a little Pabloism going on. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of Pablo, um, like when Troy comes to visit him at the the table and stuff like that. Right. Even before I read who, who was actually doing the artwork. Right. I was like, hey, this kind of reminds me of... Pablo's early work. Yes. And it was him, and I was like, yoo Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Not only do I like it, but I recognized it. Yes. Some of the faces, Picard's face, Riker's face to some degree, but mostly Picard's, really looks like Pablo's work. Very nice. And that really is the last comment I have for this issue. My last comment is an actual just a question. On page 13... If you're going to jump over there. When Data is kind of pointing toward the view screen at the top of the page, talking about the solar flare spikes, mm-hmm. it looks like there's some letters that say NCC 7201. Oh, good point. But it, it might not be because it's a lowercase n, so it might be lowercase n, capital G, capital C 7201. Yeah, it looks more like that. But what is that? Is that the name of the the, the sun? 
Maybe. I don't know. But that it does look suspiciously close to uh, <laughs> to registry numbers of starships. Exactly. Uh, that, that could very well be the sun's designation. The star's designation. Right. But why would it be lowercase, uppercase? I don't know. Yeah, I just did a search on NGC, and that's how they label galaxies. Well, so it must be including non-pertinent astronomical information on the uh, chart. Right. Because obviously they're nowhere near another galaxy. Right, but they will make references to other galaxies here pretty soon. So. Um. Yes, or at least outside of our galaxy. Yeah, it says that uh, it's a um, prefix used in assigning numerical designations to stars and stellar bodies. So, cool. There you go. So it could just be the star. Anyways, I didn't know that. That's a real thing. Cool. So that's what it is. Well, cool. Shall we go on to our next thrill-packed episode? Yeah, let's see what happens. Yes. Okay, so this is going to be Ill Wind Part 3. The writer is, again, Diane Duane. The penciler is Ken Save. Inker, John Montgomery. Colorist, Pamela Rambo. Letterer, Chris Eliopoulos. Editor is Margaret Clark and Dana Curtin. The cover is dominated by Worf's head and Crusher's upper torso with a holodeck background in the upper portion. The lower portion features two people with pointed ears and dark hair, and they're fighting hand-to-hand, both in steel-blue-colored clothes. When I first saw the cover, I thought they were Vulcans, but it looks like it's probably some of the uh, Mestral's people. The issue opens with the captain's log, stating the race is now in its 25th hour. Multiple irregularities have taken place that the captain intends to get to the bottom of, the worst of which is a bomb planted on the Shedart yacht. Cut to just outside the shuttle bay, where Worf, Geordi, and Dr. Crusher are playing back security sensor readings that show a three-dimensional humanoid figure that is dressed in some kind of full-body suit that is masking his identity. They follow the ghostly 3D image into the bay, where the more sensitive sensors pick up the body temperature, which is a high 320 degrees Kelvin, which proves... The intruder is not human. They see it is carrying a device that looks like the bomb they pulled off the Shedart yacht. Dr. Crusher is able to read off the recorded security sensor readings that the intruder has six kidneys and an absorptive gut. That and several other anatomical details tells her the intruder is a Karig that is trying to look like a humanoid. Geordi and Worf say this evidence is not conclusive and could be someone trying to cast suspicions on the Carrig. Worf points out they still don't know how the bomb got from the shuttle to the Shedart's yacht. Suddenly, for no obvious reason, they all say they have enough evidence to say that one of the competitors is guilty of attempting to take the life of another racer, which means automatic disqualification. They go to see the captain. The three tell Picard they have proof that it was the Carrig. However, Picard says he will do nothing at this time about it. The others are surprised. 
Picard says they will keep an eye on the Carrig and make sure no further dirty tricks are successful. Then turn the evidence they have over to the authorities after the race. They will surely be disqualified. All the better if they actually manage to win, as their actions will directly lead to the win being stripped from them. Picard says they can lodge all the formal protests they want to. It will do them no good. Justice, plain and simple. Later in the 14th hour of the race, the only further issue is the Karig's yacht, which is developing a food replicator outage. Riker suggests they beam over bread and water. So far, Andrew Starr has not been misbehaving with its radiation output. Deanna enters Picard's ready room. She reports she is feeling sleepy when Picard asks how she is feeling. Picard talks about how impressive the Mistral is. He finds his old desires to sail are resurrected being at this race. He questions whether he should have buckled under Starfleet's regulations so easily when it asked him to put aside this passion. Troy does some head shrinking on him, which seems to help him with this period of doubt. Worf reports the Mistral's support craft resolved their fuel coil problem and should be back to the race course in six hours. On the Mistral ship, they welcome the update from Worf also. They also see in the latest Starflare predictions that a big one should be coming up in two hours. The Mistral orders her team to prepare to put out more sail to maximize the speed boost when the flare's elevated output reaches them. As Picard leaves the bridge to speak to Dr. Crusher, Deanna tells Riker she has just picked up on a strong feeling of distress, but she is not sure from whom. In sickbay, Dr. Crusher says that tests on Deanna to find out the source of her sleepiness has pointed out an on-and-off EEG trace that may be interfering with her normal brain activity. She can't sleep properly, and this phantom brain signal may be the cause. They talk further about the cause and its continuing effects on Troy. Picard departs, saying they will keep an eye on her, and Crusher says she will continue her research. Later, the Starflare hits. The Mistral and her people extend the sails, which accelerates the craft. They are on course to pass the Kellebeck yacht. After they pass the Kellebeck, one of the crew named Venant pulls a phaser out and points it at the Mistral. A female member of the crew leaps at Venant to throw off his aim, but in the end she is shot by him. Mistral's consort Rav takes the opportunity to attack, get the gun from Venant, and shoots Venant. Incredibly, Venant is not slowed down by being shot and knocks Rav to the ground. The Mistral is furious and kicks Venant to the ground. A phaser won't affect Venant, but it's a good thing that the Mistral's kick will. As they are still absorbing Venant's betrayal, Rab uses the phaser to disclose his own betrayal. He tells the Mistral to sit down as he says, There are people in the government who know they need her, but she needs to listen. He stuns her with the phaser to get her to sit down and be still. He gets close and tells her if she does not listen very carefully to what he is about to say, she may not live out the night. 
to be continued. Talk about a bad ex. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, he is armed and <laughs> in the same small craft with you. <laughs> so this is a good example of the weird physics that this ship has. Here, yeah. gravity seems to be working normal. They're all on the same plane. The, the chairs are all level up right. to the ground. Right. And um, nobody's floating up to the top of the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know. I don't know what the benefit is of having the chairs floating around, but maybe there's some benefit. But obviously they can turn the artificial gravity on or whatever and get everybody in a, norm, a more normal configuration. I suppose it might make sense if you really think about it, but it just seems weird to me. Right. Yeah, and it's definitely... They, they're weightless when they're floating around because the people that are upside down aren't wearing seatbelts, so they're just floating in their chair. They're, they're not falling out. Well, so. perhaps there is a invisible butt gravity generator in the seats <laughs> that keep them planted. I don't know. I didn't think about that. A little uh-huh. singularity in the seat cushions. Just <laughs> a tiny them... one. A little tiny one. <laughs> that you can Anything. turn off, of course. Of course, yeah, you don't. You don't want to be stuck. Right. Yeah. But it would be convenient if you had a mighty wind while you're sitting in the chair. As opposed to an ill wind, yes. I don't know. Anyways. Could be unpleasant, though. Anyway. So when the uh, the female co-pilot got shot that was actually a pretty cool visual yeah I mean, she gets the drawing was nice she gets shot point blank yeah well that whole thing at the end was confusing it was confusing I mean correct me if I'm wrong but Rav shot her or shot him mm-hmm. and then in the next panel the guy's kicking Rav's butt it's like what yeah yeah the the artwork doesn't flow right. No. Unless you read it like you just did, which is he gets shot and then he really hits Rav and then she kicks him. Yeah. Well, but... which is the way I guess it is because it shows Rav dropping the phaser and falling to the ground while she's kicking him, so he's just a really tough dude. What? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I I don't get it, but no. But at least they've got um, at least Rav and the Mistral have blue jumpsuits on, and what Venant and the female pilot or whoever she was, they've got green ones on. Right. So at least you can keep them straight a little bit. But whatever. Actually, if you if you look at that those frames again. Um, I think there's only one phaser. Yes, I, I agree with you. There's only one phaser. Yes. Yeah. So, so I it doesn't know. make sense. So it's it's a two-page spread for those of you that don't have a comic, and all this is happening in two pages. Right. So the top part has three panels with uh, Venet attacking him. He turns around and puts the phaser to her chest and fires, and then the next panel shows her kind of pulled away from him while she's disintegrating I guess right in, in great agony Kirk like agony <laughs> and then the middle has one panel of Rav kind of 
body slamming uh, Venet, and right. then this huge picture of Venet getting shot. Right. And then the bottom two panels show um, Raven Venet fighting, and then uh, the Mistral kicking him. Right. So, yeah. very roughly. Yeah, very Kirk-like kick. <laughs> right. Not a two-foot kick, which is really Kirk-like. Just a single one, but sh- with authority. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, uh, Rab takes him out, and then and then he turns out to be a bad guy, too. Yes, he does. It's all part of... It, the thing that's amazing is, it seems like Rav must be in league with uh, this Venet guy, right? I mean, or or there's two different plans going on, two different betrayals going on. I don't know. I think there's two different betrayals. Rav okay. is part of a... Well, we'll find out more about his motivations, and then these guys... Uh, Venet was just wanting to kill her. Or at least that's what I got. Well, but why... Yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we'll come back to this later. All right. Um, I got a problem with something at the beginning of the comic. All right. That whole thing where they were playing back the sensor readings and had an actual 3D representation of the intruder. Mm-hmm. And Worf and Crusher and Jordy are, like, following this aberration around through the shuttle bay. Yep. And... I'm completely down with the idea that they were able to generate a 3D holographic image or something. I'm fine with that. But then Crusher's got her tricorder going on the 3D generated image. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait a minute. Okay, so it's not only like photons or something, but it's also reproducing other recorded properties of the intruder. Right, recorded properties that they can't get off of just the computer giving them well, information. Well, exactly, exactly. Now, I mean, it. I think she actually makes some some references to the fact that she's using the tricorder in a sensing mode, as opposed right. to just like like downloading some readings. Right. You know, as a display device. Right. I had the exact same problem with this scene. Yeah. And um, then Jordy's looking at it. And he's seeing it as if it was not a hologram, that it was really there, too. He's he's noticing the temperature and, and right. all that other stuff, which, you know, if something is 130 degrees Kelvin, that would be about 100, 120 degrees Celsius. So it's not... I did, it's I not, did not go to... Boiling, I didn't but it, go to it the, would be hot, so... Yeah. When do the safeties kick in and be like, uh, we can't have this walking around in the holodeck because somebody may burn their finger, you know? Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, they did make a point about the sensors supposedly being very sensitive to temperature in case the engines of the shuttlecrafts were having problems or something. But... And I get that. They should get yeah. that information off the the, the sensor readings, not exactly. Jordan Pfizer and Exactly. I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah, and the fact that you can get readings about his kidneys and gullet or guts or whatever she called them. Ah, uh, that, that. Oh, that was the ultimate. <laughs> okay, she was able to tell that what he had like six stomachs or something or six kidneys. Six, six kidneys, kidneys, right? Yeah. Six kidneys, really? Okay. Well, then the original sensor readings must have had must have recorded that. Right, but she's acting Not like she's getting it off the tricorder. Tricorder. Uh, whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, it looks like we had the same problem with that. Yeah. yeah. It was fine. We were able to follow it. The char- some of the characters we like got some got some comic time, got to interact with each other. That's nice and everything, but it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, the whole fuzzy image thing, I thought I kind of liked, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, but it was just the whole sensor reading state that took me out of exactly. it. Exactly. Right. Right. The um, the sensor kind of shadowy guy. Um, I know that you don't play video games, but recently there has been a new Batman game called Batman Arkham Origins. Origins, yeah, there it is. And in it, he has this like detective mode where he can like see a body on the ground, and then he can scan things, and then it'll like play it backwards so that he can see, you know, where did the body fall from, where was the bullet coming from, things like that. And when they do the rewind uh, of you know his analysis. It looks like this: this kind of grainy form, kind of moving around and and falling and things like that. So it was kind of odd that this image looks so much like that Batman or, uh, Origins. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. And of course, this was drawn far before that. Oh yeah, yeah. Hmm. So just I just like the similarities. Cool. But I don't buy the whole six arm, two arms. Oh, they, six kidneys and well, yeah, and they say that there's two arms that are bound to his chest, right? So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, and, and in the end, it, it seems very likely that it was because we do know that the Karg were planning something. Sure. So, but the thing that bugs me is, I mean, they were actually saying. This is either the Karg or somebody that really wants to make it look like the Karg. And then and then they go back to Picard and say, Oh, it's the Karg! Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seemed like a little bit of flipping. I did like Picard's reply. Yeah. And then Worf's reply back saying, You'd make a good Klingon. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't go into all the detail of that, but um, yes. Picard's already thought through all this way before those guys <laughs> have done their report. He knows what he's going to do because he's pretty sure who did it. I think that, or else he came up with all that very quickly off the cuff. Now, when we were talking last week about the Karg, mm-hmm. we commented that they had all these—they're the guys with the eyeballs, right? Right. The Karg. Yep. Yep. Did tentacles. Have, tentacles have... with eyeballs at the end. I don't remember them having two two sets of arms. I remember them um, just having the two arms, two legs, and that's what I thought. Eyeballs, and, and they were really big guys. So right. the idea that they were talking about him being corseted to the to the point of uh, asphyxiation or something. Uh, now that kind of made sense. I just didn't get the extra arms. Right. It is ironic, you know, because in the scenario we had not read the books when we talked about it last week and right. <laughs> ironically enough last week I told you that the only people we could exclude from this list were those lizard guys the gecko looking guys that had the six arms <laughs> and uh, ironically enough it it was people with extra arms but, but not those it was the tentacle eyeballs I still don't I that's still don't a very find... good point that's a very 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 good point hmm I still don't see where. I, I actually pulled up issue number one, and I'm, I'm not. I'm looking at it too. I'm not seeing extra set of arms. No, he doesn't. And, and they really strapped down the eyes too, obviously in that suit. 
Unless we're wrong, is um, are I, these guys not the Karg? They are. I thought though. they were. I think they they. Yeah, yeah, they are. I think they're the Karg. But there's definitely another set of guys. There are lizard guys, like you just mentioned a few minutes ago, that have a lot of arms. They've got like one, two, three, at least four arms. On each side, uh, right? On each side, at least. One, two, three, four, five, six. Well, some are legs. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a little confusing. Right. So, anyways, uh, I was confused with their analysis about the extra set of arms because right. I, I never saw it. Anyways. So, what do you think about the art in this one? Uh, I wasn't too blown away with it. No. It's back to being not as good. Especially in the faces. I just, I'm just not a fan. I mean, some of the faces are okay, but uh, some of them aren't. Often they're not, in my opinion. I mean, they're okay. They're detailed, but... Mm. They're no watercolor. Well, let's go with that. Well, they're not. And darn it, we know how much we like watercolor look. Right. No, but I agree with you. They don't, they don't seem to be as detailed. Right. And a lot of the bodies don't seem to have much texture to it, except for, like, you know, Crusher's coat has a bunch of wrinkles in it. But aside from that, everybody kind of looks blobbish. Yeah. Blobbish, yes, yes. Yeah, they're just a shape with colors on it and no real detail. Right. Uh, I really don't have any other comments about this. I don't either, except that I'm again, I'm a little bored with the whole Deanna sideline story. She's sleepy. Why is she sleepy? Oh, I feel somebody. I don't know who. That's uh, I don't know. I I just don't care that much. Sorry, there are probably Troy fans out there, but... <laughs> well, we find out uh, here in a second uh, what she's feeling. Yeah, and we know we know why everything's happening to her, pretty much. And boy, is it a surprise! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't see that coming? Oh, I totally called it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's get to the next issue so people can be in on the joke. Okay, let's do that. All right, so issue four. Let me jump to it real quick. All right, so issue four came out February of 1995. A lot of the art staff is uh, the same as issue two, but let's just run through it real quick. Diane Duane is the writer. Penciler is Ken Save. Inker, Pablo Marcus. Letterer, Phil Felix. Colorist, Pamela Rambo. And Margaret Clark and Dana Curtin are the editors. So, this is Ill Wind number four. The cover is a painting, as the other three have been, and the left side shows Riker with a phaser, kind of looking up at the titles. And then to the right, we see the Enterprise D and an alien craft, and each one's firing some phaser blasts, not necessarily pointing at the other ship, but uh, they are firing at something. Maybe the Enterprise is shooting at the craft. It's it's unclear. Anyways, the story starts off on the Mistral's ship. Rev, her former husband and co-pilot, has stunned her, and he's holding her at phaser point. He tells her his plan, and the plan of the group that he works for. She is to be brainwashed so that she will be open to suggestions planted by the group. She will be turned into a puppet leader. 
He is so caught up in his schemes and explaining them that he does not notice when she opens communication with the Enterprise. And they, too, have heard his whole story. The Mistral and her former lover have another fight in the small craft. She is stunned again, just as Riker, Data, and Crusher beam over to the ship. Rav tries to act like he was defending her against the bodyguard from the previous issue. Riker quickly lets him know that they heard the whole story and that his lies mean nothing. As more solar flares hit the craft, Picard has to talk Riker and Data into flying the ship. Suddenly, the Mistral's supply ship finally makes its long-overdue return. It turns out to be a heavily armed attack craft. It fires on the Enterprise, who is doing everything it can to keep any stray shots or engine exhaust from destroying any of the racer craft. They are eventually able to disable it, just as the Mistral's race craft starts to fall apart. The solar flares calm down enough to allow transport just in the nick of time. The transporter chief is able to beam Riker, Data, Crusher, the Mistral, and Rev away just as the tiny craft explodes. Suddenly, Troy starts to act strangely, and the blue sun starts to writhe. Suddenly, a large energy-based dinosaur emerges from the sun. It uh, looks a lot like a pterodactyl-type thing with wings. It's about the size of the Enterprise-D, so it's huge. So it swims up and kind of stares down the ship, uh, and then it quickly turns around and departs, heading on a course outside of the galaxy. Later, the staff is discussing what happened. The creature must have been attracted to the energy the Enterprise was emitting. When it realized that the Enterprise was not a creature like itself, it flew away. They also say that the other similar stars in the area that were all red uh, must have been incubators at some point. And now that this one that's been blue the whole time will eventually turn red like the others. Later, the Mistral is having some alone time with the captain in his ready room. She tells him that she will no longer race, but she does offer Picard to come visit her sometime and that he can race the local circuits around her solar system. He does not comment one way or the other. They spend some time reciting some poetry, and the issue ends with him looking out at her small craft as it departs the Enterprise. The end. Of course, a space dinosaur. How could I not have seen it? Or a dragon. It was also referred to as a dragon. A three-eyed dragon. Did it only have three eyes? It looked like it had more. Well, uh, I see three. So who knows? Maybe it has more. Yeah, so you didn't call the the space dragon, huh? You know, I had a feeling around issue two. No. No. (laughs) Oh, my God. Come on, a freaking space dragon? It's like, come on. wasn't there another comic that was kind of like that? It involved Harry Mudd or something, and the planet or something could right. be uh, an egg, mm-hmm. and some huge space something or other ends up flying away. Oh my god! Exactly that, and also uh, Peter David. You know, he he wrote the novels for um, New Frontier. You mm-hmm. know, Captain Calhoun's ship. Oh yeah. Oh, I know very much. And in Excalibur. his. Yes, in the first um, in the first series of the Excalibur books, similar thing happens. Um, a planet that one of their crew members 
actually ended up being a giant egg that, that hatched and released the Great Barrier of the Galaxy. <laughs> and they actually called it the Great Barrier of the Galaxy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Which, this is like this is like the Great Dragon of the Galaxy. Right, but not nearly the size of, of a planet-sized egg. Though it's coming no, from the sun, so it it's, could potentially be a lot bigger. Well, yeah, and... I, I don't know. I, you know, bonus points for creativity, Diane. But oh my God! So it's a physical creature that goes into the sun, but it's pure energy when it comes out. Is that what they were saying? Yeah, I, I didn't really catch what they were saying. I couldn't tell if because they said what what could it have been thinking when it went into the sun? And Burr, uh, cold. <laughs> I was thinking more of, you know, like it I was, you know, thinking like that comic book in, in New Frontier where it was it's being hatched, not necessarily Right. Uh, not, not not entering an active sun. A, a star. I mean, what the heck could survive that? Well apparently this creature. Right. I don't know. But it I just... mean if it did go in as a solid creature and came out as an energy creature then I don't know, you can't destroy yeah. energy. Well, yeah, but it's going to have to change from its matter form pretty quickly. Otherwise, it's going to be burnt up like a little uh, crisp ash. I mean, you can't go into something like the sun that close. No. I mean, I've seen Green Lantern. Remember what happened ah! to Parallax when it got sucked into <laughs> exactly. the sun? Exactly! Even the Parallax couldn't survive that. What <laughs> chance is the space dragon? Exactly. Good so, point. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, and uh, how does he get back out again? Let me let me ask you. Gravitational forces. Well, I guess if it's all energy, maybe. But mm. maybe those giant wings are giant solar sails, and oh my, it's riding pushed, the current, pushed along just like those little spacecraft were. Uh, could be. I think after the dragon came out, and like Data was explaining a bunch of things, and Troy was talking about the impression she got off of it. You know, it it started being a little bit more interesting to me. But when I first saw the dragon come out, it was like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Right. Did you like the dragon? No, I didn't like it. Okay. (laughs) I did like the word balloons uh, as it was, you know, emerging where it says, you know, that the Enterprise is is fulfilling its mission to seek out new life. I did like that little dialogue, but, you know. Where it ends with here there be dragons. Oh right, uh, right, right. That, that was a little much. Yeah, <laughs> really over the top. But uh, it was a surprise. Oh, I will yeah. admit, I did not see this one coming. Oh no! And all I can say is du tonnerre, which means that is French for thunderbolt from the blue. Oh, is that what uh, is that what Picard says? Well, actually, he says it on page three, but right, I- I'm saying it here. Okay. I do remember there was one line where he said something in French. Right. Okay. Yeah, so that was like when they started hearing the conversation between the Mistral and and the treacherous husband. Right. But I I think think they should have saved that for the dragon. Yes. That's a little bit more surprising. Was for me. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, we get that big shock, space dinosaur, and what one question that these four issues have been leading up to, did I not see the answer for? 
you asked a question? Which one of the things well, you I, didn't see? These, these four issues have been leading up to one event that I never saw what happened. Who the hell won the race? Ah. <laughs> Was uh, it the Craig? That's that, a very you know, good... And then Picard's well, going to give it, stick it to him with the, uh, I know that you've been mad, bad boys. I mean, mm-hmm. who won? That's Turtle a very good people? question. <laughs> because basically, the Mistral's out of it. So fine, her, her ship's destroyed. But right. uh, they never say anything about the other ones. And don't you think that's kind of important? I think it's very important. Of course, once you see a space dragon come out of the sun, maybe not so much. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just expected some some sort of like you know a line somewhere that says, "Oh, you know, by the way, the bird people won." <laughs> no, they didn't have a technical manager. Uh, or the bird people are about to win, but the cat people ate them. <laughs> anyway. uh, anyways, I just thought that was really weird that yeah, Good you point. W- you wouldn't tell us who won after we've we've basically been waiting for issues for that race to end. Right. Anyways, so speaking of the race, something I did like in here is they started giving more detail at the beginning about the course. Mm-hmm. So they were talking about how there are 16 boys that the racers have to navigate towards, and they're arranged around the star. So it's like, oh, they're arranged around the star, so kind of like in an orbit kind of thing. But that orbit kind of thing must be gradually going outward away from the star, right. because, of course, the solar wind is pushing you out. Very interesting. They also said at the end... There's a maneuver you have to do where the racers will use slingshot velocity to accelerate them towards the finish line. So I thought right. that was kind of interesting. Okay, so you're being pushed by solar wind this whole race, and then at the end, you're going to do a uh, Star Trek four kind of slingshot around something to pick up a lot of speed. Right. Um, I thought that was kind of cool. But mm-hmm. So I assume that last slingshot is going to have you going even further away from the star to the last boy, because that makes it more exciting, rather than right. slingshotting going back towards the sun, and then you're going against the wind. So I don't think that's the case. But uh, what are they slingshotting around? I mean, you're using gravity, right? right? And you're going around something to pick up speed using the gravity assist from the slingshot maneuver. I just wonder what they were slingshotting around. Something with a lot of gravity, I guess. Right. So maybe a, a large planet, but it doesn't say. No, it doesn't say. So, yeah. Kind of interesting, but also had... It, it raised some questions as well as uh, gave some, some ex- explanations. Right. So they're, they're not going at warp speeds. Oh, no. So, you know, how far is this race really going? Because, I mean, it, it talks about... Like you said, these 16 buoys being around the sun. Well, they're not making a whole orbit over the sun, around the sun. I would agree with that. Yeah, not at sublight speed. So, yeah, I'm with you. You know, where exactly are they going? Yeah. Interesting. Yes, it was interesting, and it would have been nice to have a resolution to that part of the story. Especially since (laughs) they spent so much time talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think you're starting to get into... And I don't want to be sexist here. And I will, I'm taking some risk with what I'm about to say, but um, Diane wrote the story, and I hate to say this, but 
she didn't care who won the race. And it's like, we're guys. And it's like, well, who won the race? And <laughs> and there's an awful lot of dialogue going on in here and a lot of angst and a lot of, you know, the potential Picard, Mestral, um, under the surface kind of sexual tension going on. There's something going on there. Right. And you especially see it towards the end, especially since, hey, I'm free now of my consort. But that's all kind of, ooh, attraction and 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 the promise of romance that can never actually be attained. I mean, some of these themes are not universally uh, female, but I think they have more attraction for ladies. And uh, I don't know. It just it just had more of a um, a female dynamic to this to the to the story, which is fine. I just right. wanted to point it out. Well, I can see that, and I I liked. All of that, I think, like I said, in the earlier, I think they spent maybe a little too much time on it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you pointed out she must know a lot about racing, or at least did a yes. lot of research. So, just because she spent so much time explaining how these ships work, how delicate they are, you know, four issues of this race going on, you think that we would find out who won? Nah. <laughs> that, that's my only thing. That's like... I don't know. Maybe right. maybe she did it on purpose so that yeah. uh, you can draw your own conclusions. Yeah. Or or maybe because of the event and the right. amount of uh, radiation that was thrown off. That um, may, well, maybe all the ships were affected. I mean, we just focused it on the Mistral ship. You know, maybe they were all adversely affected enough that the race really couldn't go on anymore. I don't know. Right. Which is fine. Just yeah. just mention that. Yes, yes. That would have been handy. That would have been handy. And let me know that the Karag or whoever got what was coming to them, you know? As far as we know, they got away with planting that bomb, and they're not going to get arrested or anything, because Picard was only going to use that as a stick it to them if they win. Oh, I think he was going to do that anyway. He just said that if they win, it's even better. Anyways, I wanted to see them in handcuffs with their extra arms that I've never seen before <laughs> walking into the ship, the prison ship, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. A little resolution, please. Thank you. That's right. And my last comment, you know, because I think we've we've beaten the, the dragon to death and things like that, but how big are these little sail ships? Because um, on page 12... There's a shot where it looks like the Enterprise is in front of the Mistral's ship, and her wings go way past the saucer section of the Enterprise. Yes. Is it really supposed to be that big? Because I always kind of thought it was supposed to be this really tiny, smaller than a shuttlecraft, but, you know, yeah, it had well, large wings, but right, yeah. but not bigger than the whole Enterprise D. That's, an, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I know they made a big deal about how big the wings were. But the wingspan, I think they even quoted uh, a distance, a length, right? Um, in the in like the first issue. But uh, yeah, they they're sure making it look like uh, the wingspan is broader than the Enterprise. So yeah, I completely agree in that particular panel. I mean, you bring up a good point. I could have probably looked it up and done the math myself, but <laughs> to see if it if it would really fit. Right. But yeah, I didn't do it well I think they purposely did that shot 
to show the Enterprise getting in the way of the phaser fire sure. of the uh, of the tender ship, but also they may have purposely wanted to show off the fact that the wingspan is so broad, or really in the end, the way they drew it, I mean the Enterprise, you had to see that the Mistral ship was behind the Enterprise and they were right. protecting them, so mm-hmm. maybe that was part of the reason too, I don't know. But I will say this on the next page that's straight across from it, the the wings are significantly shorter. Right. Significantly. Because exactly. I think the fuselage the fuselage of these of these ships, I don't think what it maybe like two or three times the size of a normal shuttlecraft, but not much more than that. Right. Right. Yeah, they shouldn't be that big. No. Especially since they keep talking about how delicate they are. Oh, right. you sneeze on them and they break, uh, you know, and that's why the Enterprise has to, you know, can only use thrusters, and you can't, you gotta be careful not to blow some exhaust on them and things like that. <laughs> so, I mean, they, they just go out of their way to talk about how dainty these things are, and then we right. see, we see it have this big giant gravity-free room inside of it and things like that. Just that kind of betrays the thought of it being delicate. Really small, yeah. Well, I don't see why the fuselage itself can't be pretty strong, but those wings and how the wings go into are attached to the craft, I could see that being a weak point. And that's really where the structural integrity gave way mm. in the Mistral ship. But, eh, whatever. I mean, it's not like they got to be light. They're in space. Right. Yeah, you know. I agree. What else yeah. you got? Um, I thought ending the issue with a sizable chunk of... Uh, Lord Byron poetry was an interesting choice. Yeah, I did um, not uh, quote it in my synopsis. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's nice, and it, it kind of, I guess, kind of goes along with the themes in, in the story, I guess. And the but, title. Um, and the title, yes, exactly. Ill Wind comes from Byron, apparently. But, um, I don't know, I read that kind of stuff and it's like, God, I, I, I'm kind of sorry I wasn't able to, uh, or I did not make enough time to be more familiar with some of the uh, the classics. So it made you feel bad? A little. It made me feel bad. You spent too much time reading Fantastic Four and not enough time <laughs> yeah, reading well, now real that you literature it, when you Now that you mention it, a little heavy on the Spider-Man, a little light on the Byron. <laughs> Well, yeah, but does never Byron too late have web shooters? Down. What's that? Does Byron have web shooters? <laughs> I think not. No. No. Nor nor does he have warp drive. Uh, again, yes. Good point. All right. <laughs> I think the Mistral's people's phasers really suck. Um, you mean visually, the remote control look? Well, uh, I think... Well, except for the two two other people that were totally disintegrated, they seem to be <laughs> they seem to be pretty useless. I mean, how many times at the beginning? I think it was the beginning of this issue. How many times did Rav shoot her? Yeah, quite a few times. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna shoot you again until you listen to me. All right. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was the lowest. But setting. I think he was setting it on the lowest setting because yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're still trying to imply that he's doing it for the greater good. Right. He's not a bad guy. Yeah, well, in his idea of the greater good, which is not her idea. So. Uh, no, because she's the one getting shot. 
<laughs> yes, that that is an interesting point. That's it. That's it. That's all I say. That's all I say. Take take it take it home. Um. All right. Well, I, I don't have your anything last comments. Else. Ah. Okay. That was it. Okay. Well, end end of an interesting story arc. Yeah. No, it wasn't horrible. I mean, it did have a surprise ending. I'll give it that. <laughs> a horrible surprise ending. Well, whatever. But and also, I think that if you spend so much time in the first issue, like we talked about last week, because we hadn't read the the miniseries, you when you synopsize the first episode issue, you didn't know what to focus on and what not to, so you kind right. of covered everything. Yeah. Because you didn't know if the you know turtle people were going to come back and be a major part of the story. You didn't know, you know, so. It's just a little frustrating that none of that mattered, you know. Well, the only thing that all the other mattered. species that, that were in there were in it for the first issue and the first couple pages of the second issue, and then yeah, we never saw any of those people true, again. True, but you did have to know about the feud between the two subspecies of the lizard people. Did you? Could you? Don't think you could get away with without well, that? I think some explanation about that they hate each other and that there are two of them is kind of helpful because physically they look the same. Right. Um, although they do have different outfits. But but yeah, really, that, for the rest of it, I agree with you. The, the the other alien species were irrelevant to the last couple issues. Right. Which is yeah, too bad. Cause, I agree. I mean, who doesn't like a good story about a turtle, people? Exactly. What's all this humanoid stuff? Let's get the guys with the little... Uh, 15 jillion little eyes on the top of stalks coming out of their head. Spaghetti coming out of their head. I just wanted to see those turtle people put on some bandanas and start walking around. <laughs> kicking, some with, kicking some butt? Yeah, some some some, some turtle power. <laughs> yeah. It, it's more like Cecil turtle as opposed to Donatello turtle. Yeah, it's too bad. And by the way, shouldn't they be tortoises? Why? Not Is turtles. It a size thing? No, it's uh turtles live in the uh in the in, in water and tortoises are land creatures. So there's no no turtles live on land? They're all they're always tor- tortoises? The tortoises are the land guys and then the the turtles are they live in water. I mean they they can get out of water too, at least many of them. But a lot of them are water-based. So you're telling me that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are really tortoises? That's what I'm telling you. You just ruined my childhood. I'm sorry, man. I just thought I'd point it out. Huh. And now we're going to get emails. People are going to complain. I'm sorry. I'm just well, trying to point things out. Not to as focus, I see them. Not to focus on your personal life, but... I would say you were kind of the expert of uh, the tortoises in this uh, conversation. Yes. Being that you've owned a few and, you know, a successful tortoise breeder. Oh, Oh, God. Yeah, well. (laughs) Anyways. Yes. We do have many pet tortoises in the backyard, yes. Running free! Running free. As as God intended for tortoises to do, run free. Exactly. Run free. Oh wow! All right, so back to this issue. Uh, I have nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've read worse. I've read better. It was good. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, just a few loose ends that uh, would have liked to have tied up. Yeah, like who won? <laughs> Seemed a pretty major one, I'm just saying. Yeah. All right, well, uh, that wraps up this episode. Next week, we will do the original series and Next Generation DC Annuals number six. All right. And that will actually... Uh, we, we'll have one more specials later, so we still have two more episodes of, with this uh, DC 90s run. So, Cool. But we're getting close to the end. Close yeah. to the end. Cool. I see so, I see Ashes of Eden in our future. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the William Shatner um, novelization. Novel. Novel turned into a comic. Exactly. Cool. Have you ever read that book? Or is this going to be the first time you're exposed to the Shatnerverse? I uh, did listen to a Shatner audio book, but it, it wasn't Ashes of Eden. It's what I should have started with. Is that the first one? Ashes it of is Eden? the first one, right? Unfortunately, I started with like the second or third. Uh, was he already back to life, or was it the one oh, where he, was, he came back to life? Oh, he was back to life. Okay, because the return, which is the second one, is the one where he comes back to life after the events of Star Trek Nemesis. Mm. So maybe that's maybe you didn't even listen to that one. Wow. Anyways, so it'll be fun to talk about that. That's that's still a few episodes away. Cool. All right. So let's, uh, let's bring it Wrap on it home. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic second name book review see you next time on Star Trek comic book review let's get the hell out of here